from WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. On the show today, Louisiana Children's Hospital has received a new $100,000 grant in order to care for the mental health needs of children in detention. We speak with Julie Caplow, Executive Director of the Trauma and Grief Center at the hospital, for more on what's planned. And in light of recent acts of gun violence in Colorado Springs and Chesapeake, Virginia, we listen back to a conversation with the nonprofit 100 Black Men about their response to the growing problem of gun violence. But first, a new ACLU report in Mississippi found that the state's reproductive care systems have been failing women and mothers for decades. The Gulf States newsroom's Maya Miller talked with Vera Lyons, a lawyer with the ACLU of Mississippi. She's the lead researcher on the report and recently moved back to Mississippi after working in New York for years. Tell me a little bit about the process of you starting this policy paper. What was it like diving into the research and looking at maternal data across the state? So when I took the ACLU position, I did a lot of reading, a lot of research about um, the legal scholarship behind Roe v. Wade, what led up to it, the cases that led after it, and followed the Dobbs decision really heavily. And once the once the arguments were heard and seeing how the court was stacked, um, I kind of had a premonition as to how Dobbs was going to turn out. I don't think we could be prepared for how devastating it has been. But when I heard that Lieutenant Governor Hoseman and State Senator Nicole Boyd wanted to do a committee on women and children, I knew that we needed information out there about how dire the situation is in Mississippi. And, you know, as as much as I appreciate Lieutenant Governor Hoseman's um, deputy chief of staff calling me to talk about the committee, it concerned me that they were adamant they were not going to talk about the abortion exceptions. They thought it was too political. And I had a long conversation with her about that. And I think that's really, you can't avoid it. I think the ability to get an abortion to decide when and if you want to become pregnant is inextricably linked to the health of women and children in our state. And I think avoiding it is putting your head in the sand. So while looking at trends in the data and Getting all of this information together, what stood out to you as far as maternal care in the state? Something that really stuck out for me is I was talking to an OBGYN in Jackson, and she told me that what a lot of these lawmakers don't understand is that being pregnant is an inherent medical risk. I think that sometimes pregnancy is portrayed as this beautiful feminine thing. And while it, it can be that, it it puts a lot of stress on someone's body. And I think a lot of these lawmakers don't understand that, that when you're forcing somebody to go through with an unwanted pregnancy or maybe even carrying an unviable fetus to term, you're putting their life at risk. In your report, you talk about reproductive justice, you talk about maternal mortality, but you also make it a point to mention teen pregnancy. Why do you think it's important to talk about teenagers and teen pregnancy when talking about maternal mortality and reproductive health care in the state? Having grown up in Mississippi, I I didn't go to a public school. I went to a private school, so they were kind of free to do what they wanted to do in terms of sex education. But even then, I don't remember really getting a comprehensive sex education. 
you grow up in this culture of um, evangelical beliefs where, you know, you're not we don't talk about sex before marriage. And I think that's really detrimental. I feel that we really fail to prevent people from getting pregnant in the first place. And then once they get pregnant, we don't offer them many options. I think that politicians have to start putting their money where their mouth is. I think we can't keep saying that we're not going to expand Medicaid when 60% of births in Mississippi are covered by Medicaid. And I, I think we have to start getting realistic and we can't skirt around the topic of abortion because it's, quote, too political. Because having equitable access to abortion care is what makes women healthier. Well, Vera, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed it. That was Gulf States newsroom reporter Maya Miller talking to ACLU lawyer Vera Lyons, the lead researcher on a new report about the state of reproductive care in Mississippi. The Gulf States newsroom is a partnership between public radio stations in Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana. It's a little-known fact, but more than 75% of the youth at the New Orleans Juvenile Justice Intervention Center have experienced two or more violent deaths of loved ones before the age of five. And experts say that their inability to process this grief can often lead to the very delinquent behaviors that put them in the system. Now, Louisiana Children's Hospital has received a $100,000 grant in order to care for the mental health needs of children in detention. This will partner the Trauma and Grief or TAG Center with children at JJIC with an emphasis on evidence-based trauma and grief-focused intervention. Julie Kaplow is executive director of the Trauma and Grief Center at Children's Hospital. She joins us now with more on what's planned. Julie, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Julie, tell us about this partnership between the TAG Center and JJIC. How many youth in the center will be impacted by this? And give us some of the details about the treatment plans. We are incredibly grateful to the New York Life Foundation for this grant that is really allowing us to sort of do a deeper dive into what kids in the JJIC actually need. As you mentioned earlier, so many of these kids have experienced traumas but many, many have experienced the death of a loved one, and that doesn't always get addressed in these settings. So the idea is for our trauma and grief clinicians at the TAG Center to be able to go into the JJIC, lead groups that are focused heavily, not just on trauma, but on bereavement, and provide an evidence-based intervention called trauma and grief component therapy to ensure that those kids, those youth, are getting exactly what they need um, in terms of both trauma-focused treatment as well as grief-focused treatment. I'd like to break down the the language behind the treatment a bit more. Trauma-informed care and grief-informed care. You yourself are the co-founder of an evidence-based intervention called Trauma and Grief Component Therapy. So what exactly does that kind of care look like? How might it be, for instance, different from traditional approaches? Sure. So often when kids experience trauma, a very common response to trauma is post-traumatic stress. And we have a lot of treatments out there for youth who've experienced PTSD that really help to um, desensitize or help to reduce the fear that is associated with thinking about that event. But 
you know, what we know is that the way we go about supporting kids who've experienced trauma looks very different than how we go about supporting kids who've experienced grief. So the way that we treat kids who have experienced grief and loss, especially under violent circumstances, looks a little bit different. So things that we might do with those youth are helping them to find healthy ways of connecting with the person who died or helping them to make meaning of the loss. Things that are very different that you that are very different from typical trauma focused treatments. I know one of the goals of the of the grant is to provide culturally appropriate trauma informed care. What do you mean by culturally appropriate? What does that approach account for? So many of the youth that have experienced losses come from different backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, have experienced um, different even traumas that are associated with being part of a certain culture. So for example, we know that many kids in the JJ setting um, are black youth who have already experienced racial traumas and racial discrimination even before coming into that setting. So the interventions that we use are designed to not only address the traumas and losses that they've experienced, but even the specific racial traumas that we know so many of them have unfortunately encountered. We're speaking with Julie Kaplow, Executive Director of the Trauma and Grief Center at Children's Hospital, about a new partnership with the New Orleans Juvenile Justice Intervention Center. Julie, the treatment also claims to be evidence-based. So what's the evidence um, that not only tells us that this approach works, but also that there's a definitive link between experiencing grief and turning to violence? Sure. So... A number of our studies have shown that kids who engage in this particular intervention, again called trauma and grief component therapy, show reductions in the kinds of symptoms that are typical of kids who've experienced trauma and loss. So that includes reductions in post-traumatic stress, depression, suicide risk, or even maladaptive grief reactions. And we're also seeing improvements in school-related behaviors. So school attendance, school connectedness, reductions in violence in the school setting, as well as as the juvenile justice settings. And, you know, the research, the research linking bereavement and violent behavior is really lacking in the field. That's a very new area that we're just now starting to explore. But one of our recent studies actually showed that just by using the grief module or the grief component of this particular treatment, resulted in reductions in violent behavior. And we think that the link there is that many kids continue to engage in violent or criminal behaviors after they lose a loved one, also as a means of connecting with them. So for example, many of the kids who have lost friends in uh, gang, gang-related violence tend to carry on those violent behaviors sometimes as a way of feeling more connected to their friend who died. These were things that they engaged in together, and this is a means of them feeling connected. And so the goal is to help them to find healthier ways of feeling connected to the person who died. And instead of focusing so much on getting revenge or getting back at those who may have harmed their loved one, focusing on healthier, um, adaptive ways of dealing with that loss. Now, last month, we saw a court case that ruled the lack of mental health treatment at David Wade Correctional Facility in Homer, Louisiana, was unconstitutional. 
Right now, what are some of the the biggest obstacles to mental health treatment at correctional facilities across Louisiana, and how do we address those challenges? You know, I think one of the biggest gaps that we're seeing is that many people um, are not well-trained in how to address trauma and grief in these settings. So, for example, in, you know, programs that are focused on social work or psychology or other mental health professional fields, what we're seeing is that sometimes there is some training related to trauma, but almost none related to grief. And the unfortunate part of that is that so many of the kids in our under-resourced communities and those in JJ settings tend to have both. They've experienced both traumas and losses. So one of our solutions to this has been to start to train up the mental health workforce, especially those who are interacting with kids in JJ settings, to be able to provide evidence-based interventions, those that we know work, those that not only address trauma, but also grief, and help them really to identify those distinctions. So how do they know if a child or adolescent is grieving in a healthy or normal way versus a more maladaptive way? Or how do they know what is typical trauma, you know, traumatic stress um, after an event? Or you know, do they, does that inter- individual need a higher level of care? So really helping to both identify what is needed and also provide those evidence-based interventions. Before we go, could you tell us what you envision moving forward, say five years from now? Uh, the partnership has been running let's say a half a decade, many of today's youth aren't youth anymore. What is it that you hope to see? You know, my hope is that we can really start to raise the level of awareness about the impact of loss and bereavement on youth. Um, And, you know, recognizing that we need to identify these kids as quickly as possible, as soon as possible after the event itself, and provide them with evidence-based intervention. So my goal would be to not only raise awareness, but again, to help train those who are gonna be interacting with youth who are likely to experience these kinds of violent losses and ensure that they're able to provide best practice care. Julie Kaplow, Executive Director of the Trauma and Grief Center at Children's Hospital. Julie, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. In the last 10 days, we've seen two horrific acts of gun violence on different sides of the country, leading to the deaths of five people at Club Q, an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs, and the deaths of six at a Walmart in Chesapeake, Virginia. As the epidemic of gun violence continues to plague the country, we wanted to look back at a conversation on how one nonprofit is responding to youth violence. Today, we re-listen to a conversation with Michael Adams and Darius Lannis, president and executive director of the 100 Black Men Baton Rouge chapter. Michael, let's start with you. What's the mission of 100 Black Men and, and how does this event that you all are calling Not In This House, how does that fit into the mission? So uh, in the Baton Rouge community, 100 Black men, we have been around for 30 years. And our primary mission is mentoring young people. Uh, We offer programs like um, ACT Prep Academy. We have a STEM uh, Robotics Academy. We have a financial literacy program. Uh, But our flagship program is a program called Project Excel 
where we actually take young men in sixth grade and we ask them and ask their families, let them stay with us through uh, graduation, through 12th grade, and we'll help them to go to college. And we have been very successful in that program. But what we've learned, Karen, is, is that that's not just quite enough. Uh, we can't just turn these young men that we mentor back loose in our communities because they're not safe. And so our mission now in this space is to help understand and offer some loot, some, some solutions to curtail this rampant gun violence that has just plagued our community. And we think we should start with men. We think we should start in particular with black men and black men addressing and speaking to younger men because our motto is what they see is what they'll be. Now, Darius, how is gun violence affecting the, the black community? Is what's happening there any different than, than any other community? I want to say no, but I think that uh, given a city of our size, we are feeling it probably more than a larger city like a New York or a Chicago. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, any death of any of any kind that involves a gun or illegal use of a gun is is detrimental to any community or any society. But uh, here in Baton Rouge, we have seen an explosion of uh, gun related violence inside of our city. Just last year, we had uh, over 150 uh, murders alone. We're not even talking about shooting. So when you ask the question, is gun violence truly an issue in our city? It absolutely is, because the, the people who are affected the most are between the ages of 14 and 24. And those are African-American young black men. And then you have people who are hurt that are innocent bystanders. Three-year-old Devin Page comes to mind. He was shot uh, in his bed in April in a location not far from your offices. I know 100 Black Men, the organization, was among those calling for change after the death of, of Devin Page. The call then was to bring our community together. I think it was our president's vision, uh, President Michael Adams's vision, to uh, to get back to what we came into existence for, and that is to curtail a lot of the violence we see happening inside of our community, more specifically with young African-American Black men. Uh, I think what was different this time is, is people saw the death of a three-year-old as a call to action. Yeah, and, and this actually happened literally around the corner from our offices. So we made a call to action and we actually wanted to get out in the neighborhoods. One day when I was personally out walking the neighborhoods, uh, I ran across an elderly couple, retired couple, uh, who had spent their whole life working to earn their, their home, their retirement home, and they were in their late 70s, and they told me they sleep on the floor of their homes every night because of the gun violence that goes on in that neighborhood. We're speaking with President of the Batmers Chapter of 100 Black Men, Michael Adams, and Executive Director Darius Lannis. Not in this house is the name of this, this town hall meeting. Um, the community invitation reads, calling all fathers, sons, and brothers out for an intervention as we discuss gun violence and respect for life across Baton Rouge. What are you hoping for by way of a response here? Ultimately, it is an all call for all men. I don't. It doesn't matter if you are a brother, if you are a son, if you are a father, a grandfather, an uncle. We are calling all men, more specifically black men, to come to the table and let's build some resolutions together. The idea is to, one, let's talk about the problems that we have inside of our community. 
Also, we want to align you to some resources where we can start to right size and fix a lot of those things immediately. But then also talk about some collaborative solutions that we can create together as a cohesive city. And, and Michael, how will the evening be structured? What are you planning? So, so, and, and that's a good segue. So the first hour is framing up the issues, framing the problem, uh, us clearly understanding what has gotten us to this point. And so we're excited that Dr. Freddie Haynes, uh, Friendship West uh, Church in Dallas will be our primary uh, speaker for that event. Uh, we'll have some people from law enforcement, the, the chief, uh, we'll have a, a welcome from the mayor there and, 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 and we'll all sort of frame the issue. The second hour will break out into breakout sessions and talk about possible solutions, possible solutions in the areas of education, uh, where, for instance, the chancellor of BRCC uh, will be there participating in the areas of economic empowerment. You know, a lot of these kids have so much energy and so much intelligence that is just diverted, maybe not in the right direction. And so entrepreneurial opportunities we'll talk about there. Uh, thirdly, we'll, we'll discuss health and wellness. Mental health, mental health care is real in our community, is real in the Black community. And oftentimes we don't um, uh, pay enough attention uh, to it. Uh, and, and finally, we're being supported by the coaches at uh, Southern, and, and we're going to talk about sports and how sports sometimes help alleviate some of these problems. After the killing of Alton Sterling, uh, which was also right next door to our headquarters, um, uh, we participated with the city of Baton Rouge in a federal grant uh, that included cities that had had these um, horrific police shooting incidences. And so um, uh, the 100 decided, let's not let our participation be a one-off. So we started to develop something called Get Home Alive. How would a young person get home alive? And that has sort of morphed into a program now that we call Respect for Life, where there is actually a a movie that we had made at, at uh, Celtic Studios here in Baton Rouge with a movie producer, a young black man out of Atlanta by the name of Scott Sullivan. And we take a young man, uh, this 16 year old guy, his name is Jay, and you follow him for one week of his life. And he has all of these sort of different encounters, but it has become amazing that these kids respond to it because they see themselves in Jay's life. Darius? Absolutely. So again, it, it, it hits uh, five important key areas, and I just go through a few. I think it starts off with with uh, learning what happens inside of the home when Jay uh, is, deals with a single parent uh, and deals with a single parent inside of his household. Another one is education is the way up and the way out. What happens inside of schools? Also, what happens when you are outside of the four walls, the safety of the four walls of your home and school when you're around your peers and peer pressure begins to set in? What happens when you, when a black kid is pulled over by the police for the very first time, your heart literally drops. I can remember the moment when I was pulled over for the first time because you don't know, especially nowadays, exactly how that interaction uh, can end up. And then the last uh, piece is uh, what happens uh, in connection to our court system? What happens to our young men if they don't know uh, how to properly navigate a court system? Uh, again, this is trying to right-size a lot of the wrongs, a lot of the ills that we see happening across our community. President of the Batridge Chapter of 100 Black Men, Michael Adams, Executive Director Darius Lannis, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. Appreciate you. 
from WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans. You've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Thanks to our guests, Executive Director of the Trauma and Grief Center at Children's Hospital, Julie Kaplow, President and Chairman of 100 Black Men Baton Rouge Chapter, Michael Adams, and the Executive Director of 100 Black Men, Darius Lannis. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, our digital editor, Caitlin Omholtz, our engineers are Garrett Pittman, Aubrey Procell, and Thomas Walsh. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Historic New Orleans Collection.